Thank the Lord for that music. Thank you for being here this morning. If you have a Bible, we'll be looking out of the book of Acts, starting in chapter 19. And just as a reminder, this is the uh, day of prayer for the persecuted church all over the world. And uh, as we look at that slide uh, before us right now, it's uh, sent out by the IMB, International Mission Board, and praying for the persecuted church. Some of the things that you may not be aware of that were rather, rather startling to me when I read some of the statistics relating to the church that's being persecuted. Now, this is according to Todd Johnson, who is a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And he noted that 70 million Christians have been martyred for their faith since the birth of the church back in Acts chapter 2. 70 million. That's phenomenal. It's hard to get your mind around that, to grapple that. Half of that number, 35 million, were martyred in the 20th century. Think back for those of you alive during the 20th century. A lot went on during that time. And a lot of Christians paid the ultimate price in giving up their life. 35 million Christians. Half of that number of 70 occurred in the 20th century. Now, from the year 2001, that's not that long ago. Remember 9-11? From that year until 2010, 1 million Christians were martyred for their faith. And then that next decade from 2011 until now, there have been over 900,000, almost a million were martyred for their faith. Now, one of the things that's a little easier to understand is that one out of seven Christians alive right now are facing some kind of persecution, being persecuted for their faith. And it might surprise you that the places where the churches and the church is growing most rapidly are in places that are being persecuted. You may not know, but that in China, that in 1975, there were about one million Christians. Right now, there are over 100 million, and projections say that it could be as high as 300,000, 300 million by the year 2025. That's a phenomenal, think about that. And the persecution, most of that has occurred in underground churches because of the persecution. Believers have to meet in small groups in houses. Uh, Nigeria in West Africa is a nation undergoing persecution, mainly from the north, where the majority Muslims raid the south. But since 1953, the number of Christians have doubled since that time, largely due because of the persecution that they're facing. Now, here's the thing that is really hard to understand. Where would you think the fastest-growing church would be located? here in the United States right now. It's not America, obviously, not Europe, but it's in, of all places, Iran. Shiite Muslims, 
very fanatical Islam. It's a, it's a Sharia law state, however, a nation. However, when you look at what's going on there percentage-wise, more people are coming to faith in Christ in Iran than any other place in the world. Now, folks, did you note the thing that is uh, the common link there, persecution? It's because the church is persecuted that they are not stamped out, they are not destroyed, but they flourish, they grow. And this is what we want to look at here. Look, go to the next slide. I want to confuse you with this slide. It's, it's an interesting slide. What I want you to do, this is the, what's going on in that chapter 19 of the book of Acts and then also chapter 20. We see a phenomenal surge in the growth of the church. It, it accelerates. It takes off. In fact, I, wanna, I want you to look at that right-hand side of that slide when it says that all of Asia heard. Now, think about that for a minute. In a period of two years, all of Asia, the population of Asia during that time, which was present-day Turkey, the country of Turkey, all of Asia heard the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed. Now, how, how did that happen? Well, that's the whole point of what I want to look at this morning. It's because of persecution. Persecution is what launched the church out in Ephesus where they saw phenomenal growth. And we're going to look at three things that happened in chapters 19, 20, and a little bit of 21. So we're going to look at several passages of these three chapters out of the book of Acts. And it's going to help us to understand how persecution helps leverage growth in the church. And when a church does not experience persecution, what happens is that we become flabby in our faith. It's just like exercising. If you don't exercise, what happens? You get flabby. <laughs> if you exercise, you tone up your muscles. And that's what happens with our faith. When our faith is not exercised, when we have it so good we forget God, we tend to get flabby and weak in our faith, and that has been what has happened over the centuries in Europe and even here in the United States of America. So all of Asia heard, that right-hand side. But notice that weird-shaped building in the middle of this slide. That's the school of Tyrannos. Think of it as a Bible school. And that was the key that helped Paul as he changed his strategy, and we're going to look at that in a minute, but as you look at all those little figures around, we see the church planting team that came to Ephesus in chapter 19, made up of Paul and Silas, and as they moved into uh, the city of Ephesus, they began to try the traditional way of sharing the gospel, but the key, the turning point, was when they turned to the school of Tyrannus, where they began to disciple multiple disciples of Christ. They began to train them. They began to encourage them. And they sent them out. And as they sent them out, that's when they experienced growth. I want to ask you to look at a verse of Scripture with me, and we'll show it up on the screen in chapter 19. And we'll look at, starting in verse 9, well, actually, in verse 8. Let's look at verse 8. 
and we'll read through verse 10. 8 through 10. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Now, again, he's in Ephesus. This is his first experience in trying to plant a church there in the thriving metropolis of Ephesus. And as he begins to preach, notice what happens in verse 9. Notice what happens. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. (laughs) That's an interesting way to put it. You know, I'm out of here is what he said. As he experienced persecution, pushback. Some of them became obstinate, mostly Jewish people in that synagogue. But as we find in the next chapter, in chapter 20, many of the Greek-speaking people, many of the Gentiles really pushed back as Paul wanted to to, uh, say something before an angry crowd about the temple there worshiping Artemis, and he wanted to speak to them, but they wouldn't let him because they knew that he would be torn limb from limb. He would, be, he would be murdered for his faith, so they got him out of there. So here we see persecution taking place. So here's what happens. As we look at that first slide, here's the first thing that enabled. See, persecution is what's changed the strategy there as they looked at the persecution that was coming their way, as Paul carried out his strategy. And if you look at Paul's strategy in planting churches, he would go first to the synagogues, and he would preach the gospel to the Jewish people, and he would start there. Well, he got so much pushback there in Ephesus, he decided to stay to change his strategy. He didn't change the gospel, didn't change his message, but he did change his strategy. And what was it? Well, look at verse 10. Verse 10, very important part. This went on for two years. Oh, uh, look at the uh, last half of verse 9. I'm sorry. So, So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. See what he did? Rather than go to the to the uh, synagogues and and start with the un uh, evangelized Jewish people, what he started to do was focus more in training those that were believers, discipling them, pouring his life into them, and he did it in the in the cool of the afternoon when things. Well, I'm sorry, it was during the the hottest point of the day, and he would gather there in the afternoon, and they probably gave him the school of Tyrannus, and he just discipled them, and he poured his life into them. And notice what happened as a result. Verse 10, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. Now, just think about that for a minute. That's an extraordinary passage there. In a period of just two years, all of Asia heard the gospel. Because why? Well, he changed his strategy. That's the first thing. And why did he change the strategy? He faced persecution. You know, a lot of times persecution is going to force you to change your strategy. When we met with the evangelism committee and team not long ago, a couple of weeks ago, as we gathered together, uh, Brother Josh shared some of his ideas about changing some strategy. I can remember when I was pastoring up in Kentucky, we would go door to door. And uh, many times we would go to places that uh, we didn't know. We had a a name, and we would go. And you could do that back in about 1981. Here in 2023, 
Things have changed, haven't they? And to go door to door perhaps isn't the greatest strategy. Now, if you feel led, go to door and share the gospel. I'm not saying that you can't do that, but we need to rethink our strategy. One of the things that Pastor Josh threw out through our team was what a, what a great way to evangelize people by opening up our homes and inviting neighbors and friends that live close to us for a Bible study. That's a great strategy. I think we should try to do that, don't you? Amen? I'm going to try it. And just invite, I got, I got lost people in my cul-de-sac that I'm going to invite to a Bible study. And I think that's a great way to change strategy in order to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul changed strategy. That's the first thing. Number two is a lot more interesting. And that is he made sure people were led and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. You remember when he first came into Ephesus? If you, if you look back to that story in chapter 19, the first few verses, he met some disciples of John the Baptist. You remember what he asked them? Have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What, by what baptism are you sharing with or that you have you experienced? And they said, we have been baptized in the name of, of by John the Baptist. And he said, you need to be baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something. Paul was making sure that those that were followers of Jesus understood about the ministry and the role of the Holy Spirit in our daily walk. And that's why he elaborated to them about the person and the ministry and the role of the Holy Spirit and the importance of being baptized in, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Shelly has her brother and his daughter with us today. They're sitting right by her. And if you have time, introduce yourself to them. But I remember your dad and I went to a conference, Bible conference, down, I think it was in Boca Raton, uh, Florida, and W.A. Criswell was preaching. Man, this goes back some time, folks. I mean, I think that must have been 1976. You know, anybody alive 1976, other than me. W.A. Criswell, great Baptist preacher, longtime pastor at First Baptist Dallas, but he talked about the importance of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And when does that happen? Well, when Jesus talked about being baptized by the Holy Spirit, it was in the future, always in the future. And we see it happening in the book of Acts four times. We see it among the Jews in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. That's baptism with the Holy Spirit. Then we see it among the Samaritans in chapter 8. We see them being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then we see it in chapter 10 in the house of Cornelius. They are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then in this chapter, those disciples of John the Baptist, good guys, had great motives, but you know what? They hadn't received the power of the Holy Spirit yet. Which brings us to the question, when are we baptized with the Holy Spirit? Are you baptized with the Holy Spirit? W.A. Criswell said we, as believers who submit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, the minute we get saved, we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Amen? We are baptized into the body of Christ and that we receive this infilling of the Holy Spirit. Then he went on and distinguished between the baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I love this. 
I'm not a Greek scholar, but it is important to understand, be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. It's in the present passive imperative in the original language. You know what that means? It means don't just get filled once, be ye filled over and over and over again. You see, we all are, are like buckets that have small leaks. You fill it up in the morning, by the afternoon it's going to be half empty. And that's the way we are. We need to make sure we're being filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul, one of those believers that had arrived in Ephesus with him and Silas to make sure that they were walking in the power of God. And the only way you can do that is to be filled and submitted to the Holy Spirit of God. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Did you ask the Holy Spirit to fill you this morning? You know, I kind of remembered to ask that uh, this morning because I was going to be preaching you know, usually, but we should be doing that every day. And every moment, even when we fall into sin, commit a sin, and there are times we still slip and fall, we need to ask for forgiveness and to be refilled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the reason why this church grew the way they did. One was they changed strategy. They used a strategy that was more effective by equipping those people in the, in the school of Tyrannus. But here was probably the most the quintessential ingredient of church growth, and that is make sure you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the key is not in a method. The key is not in a program. The key is not in finding the right strategy. The key for us to grow as a church is to make sure every one of us are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? <laughs> Be ye filled continuously over and over again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, listen, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you know what you want to do? You want to share Jesus with others. Brother David, you here? Brother David, I don't know if he's here, but David, Brother David Schaffner, you know, he talks about loving Jesus, and I love Jesus. And listen, when you're full of the Holy Spirit, you want to share Jesus with others. That becomes, your, it, that becomes the overflow in your life. And that's why Paul made it such an important priority as he arrived there in the city of Ephesus to make sure that those disciples that were from John the Baptist that now became disciples of Paul the apostle, he wanted to make sure they understood the role of the Holy Spirit in their life because he's the one that gives us power. He's the one that gives us boldness. He's the one that leads us and guides us to people whose heart God is already at work in through the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that incredible that God leads us to people he's already at work in their hearts to receive the, the blessed gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And I believe when we become acutely aware of God's Spirit in our hearts and our lives that we can pray, Lord, lead me to somebody. Lead me to someone. I dare you to pray that every day, every morning. Lord, lead me to someone whose heart you're at work in right now, whose heart has been plowed up, and it's, it's become fertile ground for the seed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we see that happening in this particular passage. And uh, chapter 19, those first few verses, what did he do? He made sure they were full of the Holy Spirit. Because you know why? Because challenges were going to come. He was going to make he was going to meet people uh, that were dabbling with occultic practices. Anybody ever meet anybody like that? 
might be Satan worshipers. If you ask them, they may say, oh, I'm a pagan. And we've met people in Pensacola like that. We met some people up at a restaurant in Live Oak, Florida. We were at, well, Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday, so we went to our second, you know, default uh, choice and went to Zaxby's, you know. So we were there in Zaxby's, and one of the pastors, we had about six or seven pastors, had some pastors there, looked like they're from the Church of Christ. Man, they were all decked out in 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 uh, shirts and ties and coats and everything, and they looked, but there were some people there that just didn't seem to fit in, and I just noticed that. I, I just kept eating, and but Shelly kind of picked up on it, but there were some people that were Satan worshipers that were there, and, and they had been at a meeting not far from there at some lake where they take drugs and they jump in the water. Two of them drowned that weekend, and all kind of satanic practices. Listen, there are more and more people involved in occultic practices like that because there's such an emptiness in their hearts these days. They're looking for something. They're searching for something, and that's why we need to be full of the Holy Spirit so that we can share and proclaim the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that can fill that empty void in their hearts, that God-shaped void in our hearts that the book of Ecclesiastes talks about. And I don't believe that anybody can truly be at peace and find true joy until they've submitted their hearts and their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that was an interesting power encounter at Zaxby's. And uh, I, I could hear some yelling, and I think there were some things going on. I think one of our pastors was trying to witness to one of those young, young ladies, and it was, uh, there was a yelling match going on over. There was just a, a tenseness there. And Paul experienced that same thing as he went into Ephesus. All these people that were delved into cultic practices. You could le read it later on in verse chapters 19. Finally, they came to Christ. And the power of God was so evident. The manifest presence of God was poured out upon that city. And you know what happened? All these people that were tied into occultic practices left those practices. They brought those occultic books, those horoscopes. Anybody got any horoscopes here? Why don't you burn them today when you go home? Have a big bonfire and roast them some marshmallows or something. Any, anybody collect crystals or occultic things, some kind of amulet or whatever? Listen, why don't you give those things back to the devil and just throw them in the fire? That's what they did. These books and all these things that they had gathered together to give them power because that's at the root of animism. Animism and occultic practices like in the country where Shelley and I served for many, many years. So many of that is based in fear. They fear evil spirits. So they're looking for what? They're looking for power. The only problem is they're looking for it in, a, in the wrong places. And there's only one power that can overcome these occultic practices, and that's the power of the Lord Jesus. And as we submit our lives to him, he gives a power. He gives us a power greater. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let's go to the next slide. I want to say a word about Andrew Brunson. And as we come to this, it's an interesting slide. And it's a picture of, yeah, there he is. Andrew Brunson was a... a missionary to Turkey. You know where he served? Smyrna in Turkey. And if you read the book of Revelation about Smyrna, you remember about the church at Smyrna? That was one 
of the few churches, only two churches, that Jesus sent a letter that had only commendation. Only two. One was Philadelphia and then Smyrna. Why did Jesus only give commendation and not condemnation? Because they were a persecuted church. It's interesting. He served there. You know what? He got put in jail. You know how long? Not overnight. He was put in jail for two years. Because, because he was accused of working for the CIA or some ridiculous uh, trumped-up uh, accusation, and he was put in jail. Donald Trump, I remember, tried his best to help free him. He couldn't do it. And I remember he sent then Secretary of State, I forgot who it was then, and nothing seemed to work. You know, let me tell you the story of what happened. He had to face a jury and judges, and as he faced this jury of about nine men they asked him why are you here and you know what he told them he said i'm here to give witness to the fact that jesus christ is the only way and the only truth and the only life he is the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through him you know what happened after that they released him And he came back to America. You can hear about his testimony. If you go Google it, you can hear his testimony. He had a hard time, folks. It was no picnic in that prison. About lost his mind, but God gave him grace. You know what he said? I want you to look what he says in that. I don't know if you can read it. Let me just read it out. My concern is that we're not ready for pressure and not being prepared is very, very dangerous. You know what he's talking about? about the church in America as he came back to America and what he faced, the persecution. His main concern is that the church in America is not ready for this pressure. And not being prepared is very, very dangerous. Listen, I don't know if you're aware of it, but we in America have had it pretty good in terms of living for our faith, freedom of religion. And not until recently are we seeing the church getting pushed back and getting persecuted and being labeled as bigots just in the past 10 years or so, and that's going to increase. And you know, you know what even scares me more? This past Tuesday, I don't know if you saw it on the news, but it was the head, the director of the FBI said that what scares me is what's going on over in Gaza right now is not going to just stay in Gaza. It's going to come to countries like the United States of America. And that same day, I think, uh, Shelley and I watched on the news these immigrants, illegal immigrants, pouring into our borders on the south illegally. Now, that's a whole other topic. But here's the point. They know that these immigrants that are coming in illegally, many of them have wrong, nefarious motives, and that many of them would like to do the same thing they did in Israel back in October, was it October the 7th? October the 7th, you remember what they did? They would like to do the same thing. I'm not trying to scare you, I'm just trying to help you to realize, man, I better be walking with the power of the Holy Spirit, because it could get, it, it could get more and more dangerous here in the United States. We've had it good, but that, se- that seems to be changing. You know, I don't have to try to convince you of that. Open your eyes up, and we're seeing that there is this pushback. There is this persecution that is being leveled on the church. 
Well, that's the second thing. The second thing that enabled him to help that church grow in Ephesus was persecution. And we see that in this, in this chapter. And we see the power of the Holy Spirit coming into play. And I think Andrew Brunson would agree that the main way that we as the church can be prepared to meet persecution and face persecution in the United States of America is make sure we're walking with the power of the Holy Spirit. Have I said that enough today? I can't emphasize that enough. That you understand the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Look at the last point, and I'll end with this. He had a strong commitment to follow the Lord Jesus, and what I want to do is start in chapter 21. You've got to skip ahead a little bit, because this kind of sums up Paul's philosophy of ministry and missions. I love it. It should be ours as well. It's chapter 21, verse 13. Chapter 21, verse 13. If we could... Let's, let's uh, show that, if you could put that up on the screen. Chapter 21, verse 13. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Now, who was he talking to here? He's talking to the church there in Ephesus. And then he skipped on and he sailed there to Phoenicia and Tyre and Sidon and those cities uh, north of Jerusalem, and he was talking to the church, and they were crying because he was going to Jerusalem. And they knew it meant persecution, possible death. Notice what he says. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that clear? <laughs> Pretty clear, isn't it? I'm ready to die for the gospel. Listen. There are people in our world that are ready to die for a cause. They're ready to die for a religion. You go to Gaza, and you look at some of these folks from Hamas, and they're willing to die for a religion that is based on lies. They're willing to give themselves up. Notice what it says here. Let me underline it for you. Paul was saying, I'm willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we're ready to die for. And you know what? That's what enabled him to preach the gospel with boldness. That's what enabled him and fueled his ministry, that he would have the power and the boldness, even in the face of death. He knew what was ahead. All these people were prophesying about what was going to happen in Jerusalem. They were weeping. You know, go, Paul. He said, I know what lies ahead. Listen, I'm, I'm ready to lay down my life for the advancement of the gospel. And what enabled him to do that? Got to go back to chapter 20. And these are such important verses. I want you to make sure you're reading these. And chapter 20, we'll look at that, starting in verse 21, I've decided, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Now, why in the world if the Holy Spirit was saying that to Paul? Why didn't he just say, okay, I'll play it safe? He didn't do that. You know why? Because he was ready to lay his life down 
for the sake of the gospel. That's why the gospel advanced, folks. That's why the church in Ephesus was the largest church of all the churches that Paul and his apostolic team planted. It was because they were full of the Holy Spirit, and it was because they were willing to lay their life down for the advancement of the gospel. Amen? And for the growth of the kingdom. I love this last part. And now, compelled by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Persecution is coming. Verse 24, very important. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's a statement of someone who is focused. Focused on what? Focused on the kingdom. Focused on Jesus. He uses the analogy of a race over and over in the New Testament. We see the analogy of a race symbolizing our life here. And what's important when you run a race? Well, you got to go by the rules, one of them. You got to stay in your lane. Jim and Shelley's dad used to run the 100 meters. And I remember he used to tell story after story about running. He was a great sprinter, held the record for the 100-yard dash at uh, Oklahoma Baptist University for years, just broke all kind of records. But I remember him telling the story that when you run a race, the most important thing is not look to the right or left, not look behind you. I've seen runners fall when they check out where their competitors are and they fall, but to focus on what? The finish line, the go. What is the go? It's the Lord Jesus. Are your eyes firmly fixed on the finish line, the Lord Jesus? Because that's what enables you to finish the race and to run it well. It's a famous jockey. Some of you may remember Bill Shoemaker, great jockey, probably the best that has ever lived. But you know what he's remembered for? He's remembered for blowing the 1957 Kentucky Derby. And he was on Gallant Man, the best horse, clearly, in the field. But you know what happened? As he was in the lead, to his right side was Iron League. But he was in the lead. And he was nearing the finish line. And you know what? He, he took his eyes off the finish line, and he mistook a line in the shadows for the finish line, and he stood up in the stirrups. What happens when you stand up in your stirrups? That's hard to say, stand up in your stirrups. What happens? The horse doesn't want to run anymore. He just quit. He thinks it's over. He quit, and Iron League forged ahead and won the race, and he blew the 1957. Kentucky Derby, because he took his eyes off the finish. Folks, our eyes need to be squarely on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what enables us to finish the race. That's what, able, that's what enables us to serve him faithfully. And not only serve him faithfully, but to serve him effectively. What's interesting is note, a generation later, 
What's a generation? About 40 years. Generation later, this church, Ephesus Church, the church at Ephesus, was, was not condemned, but challenged, uh, confronted by the Lord Jesus as he gave his, not just his commendation, but he gave his condemnation. You remember what it was for the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 2? They have lost their first love. I'm wondering if there are some of their, those here today that you, you've lost your first love. What ha- how, do, how does that happen? How do you lose your first love? You remember when you first got saved? How excited you were for the Lord, and, and boy, you just wanted to witness everything that moved, witness to them, and, and you were just excited to serve the Lord, and over a period of time, that excitement waned, and you lost your enthusiasm for serving Christ. Maybe that's happened to you. It happened to the church at Ephesus. It took a generation, but they took, it took a church, this this going and growing church that, that was flourishing there in Asia Minor. All of Asia heard the gospel because uh, despite persecution, they were depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. They were using a great strategy, and, and they were fixed on the finish line and looking toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And then over a period of years, their focus began to get blurry and they shifted their attention to other things. Oh, they got active, but they no longer were fixed. Their eyes were not fixed any longer on the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, because of his love for them, was calling them back to himself. You know what he said? He said, remember from whence you have fallen. Remember the way it was when you first got saved. Repent. That's a word you don't hear much about. People don't like that today. But he calls them to repent. But Repentance is a glorious biblical word because it has within it the idea that God wants to lavish out his mercy and his grace upon a repentant church that turns back to him. And then the last thing he told them to do was to do what? To do the things you used to do. You may have quit doing the things you used to do. Maybe you're no longer active. Maybe you used to be, and you kind of said, well, let the younger generation. Listen, God never calls us to retirement. He never calls it to play it safe or call it quits. He calls us to active duty. Whatever age or whatever, whatever season in life we find ourselves in, he calls us to, to faithfully serve him, to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That's what Jesus called the Ephesian church to do. You know what happened? If they repented, God would restore them. If they didn't, you know what he said? I'm going to come and take the lampstand. You know what that meant? That that light of the gospel, the light that that was carried forth through the gospel of the Lord Jesus would be taken away. And you know what? If you go back, if you go to do a tour of the Holy Land, I wouldn't recommend it right now. But I've had friends that have gone. I've not gone, but I, I got a friend. His name's Ken, and he said, "Yeah, I went to the city of Ephesus." And they said, "Yeah, I think maybe the church is over there. Yeah, it used to be meet over there, and but it's no longer there. It's predominantly Muslim. The church died. Listen, a church that takes its eyes off Jesus is going to die. A church that 
squarely focuses in on the finish line, the author and the finisher of our faith, and we run faithfully and persistently, is going to thrive and going to grow. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for these passages out of the book of Ephesians, chapters 19 through 21. And I just thank you that you want us as a church to grow. And Lord, we realize that persecution could be coming. And we don't know to what area, to what degree, but we know we want to be ready. And God, we pray that if we have a flabby faith, that you'd give us, get our faith in shape. Help us to exercise our faith in such a way that it would enable us to withstand the persecution and opposition that is coming our way because we've taken a stand for the Lord Jesus. Help us to do what Paul said, and that is, I'm willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we pray for every person here this morning that they would come to a point and be able to pray that prayer. Lord, we want to be such a follower, faithful follower of you, that we're willing to lay our life down for the cause of Jesus and for his name. That's our prayer for Myrtle Grove Baptist Church. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to time of invitation, the invitation for our church here at Myrtle Grove is to remember, remember how it used to be. And if you've kind of slid and you've kind of left him and departed from him, return to him, repent this morning. And then do the things that you used to do when you were so excited about serving him. Maybe here you're here this morning and you'd like to make a recommitment of your life to him. Wouldn't it be great if our church body experienced personal revival, each one of us? That's why on the front of one cry, it's got that circle with a piece of chalk. And it says, Lord, send revival and let it stand. Let it, let, let it, let it begin right in me, right in the middle of the circle. But, you know, when you start doing that kind of thing, it spreads out. And when you have a corporate revival, it can affect a church. It can affect a community. It can affect a city like Pensacola. One cry, Pensacola. It can affect a nation and bring revival and spiritual awakening. If you're here this morning and like to make a decision, what a better time to do that. Then right now, if the Holy Spirit is convincing and convicting you, if he's speaking to you about some need in your own life, maybe an issue you're dealing with, maybe a problem you're dealing with and you need prayer, we're going to have some counselors up here. I love it the way at the time of invitation, and, and I love two things, the way Josh always makes the gospel personal, and he gives an invitation at the very end. And I'm going to do that in a minute, but also the way the counselors are trained and ready and in tune with what the Spirit's doing. They come and stand at the front. They'll be here at the front. If you want someone to pray for you, they're here. They love you, and they want to see God at work in your life. And maybe you're here this morning, and you've slid back, and you've, you've we used to call it backsliding. Lo and behold, there's a solution. <laughs> and repent. Return to Him. Do the things that you once did. That's, that was the message Jesus had for the Ephesian church. I think that's the church. I, I think it's the message 
right now for Myrtle Grove. Return and do the things you used to do. Father, I pray that you would just work in the hearts of your people right now during this invitation. And Lord, if there no one comes, we'll still praise you, but I can't help but think there are some that need to make personal decisions. I can't help but think that need to, there needs to be people that need to recommit their hearts and their lives to the Savior. People that were once active, once excited, once on fire for you, but that fire has gone out. Lord, we pray We pray that you would rekindle that fire in the hearts of your people here at Myrtle Grove and let revival start right here in me and let it spread to the whole body. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. Let's stand and sing. And our counselors will come. And as they come and ready to pray for those that come forward, you come if the Lord leads you, if he stirs your heart to come and make a decision, would you do that right now? Maybe you're here this morning for the first time and you've, made, you've become aware of your need for forgiveness, that you've never really met the Lord Jesus. And you think it sounds a little strange being willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, when you meet him personally, when you know him personally, you're ready to give it all for him. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never done that. I invite you to do that. Surrender your life to him. Submit yourself to him is our prayer for you. If you're here and you've never tasted his grace and his mercy, this message is for you. Let's respond as the Holy Spirit leads you. You come as we pray. Whoops, excuse me, Corey.